Thank you for remaining standing for the honor of the reading and the hearing of God's Word. And if you have your copy of the Word with you, I encourage you to pick it up and turn with me there to Galatians chapter 1. It's right after 2 Corinthians and before Ephesians, and I'll share with you something that came to mind as I was thinking about this. I had a friend who told me, just remember, General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. It stuck with me, and now you have it. So let's turn to the Word of God, Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 11. 11 hear now the Word of God. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my conversion in times, conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days, but other of the apostles saw I none, save James the Lord's brother. Now the things which I write to you Unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. And they glorified God in me. Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, we are ever thankful for the authority and truth of your word. How sweet are your words to our taste. Sweeter even than honey. By your precepts we gain understanding and learn to hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is the beginning of wisdom and in it the simple find understanding. As we turn our attention now to your holy word, we confess that apart from the help we receive from your Holy Spirit, the truth of your word remains dark in our understanding. We therefore pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to empower both the preaching and the hearing of your word. Help us, Lord. Help us to understand and believe. Take the understanding that you grant and apply it deeply to our lives and to our relationships and to our testimony. Take the revelation of your work in Paul's life and weave his story into our story that we might more faithfully proclaim the story of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to our children and to all you would bring into the way. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> As we continue working through Galatians, it's helpful to occasionally check the rearview mirror, as it were, and see what those who have gone before us have written about this epistle. 
And so I open this morning by sharing what Augustine observed in his commentary on Galatians, where he wrote, The reason the apostle writes to the Galatians is so they may understand what is that God's grace accomplishes. What is it that God's grace accomplishes for them? They are no longer under the law. For though the law, for through, for though the law, for though the grace of the gospel has been preached to them, there were some from the circumcision who did not grasp the real benefit of grace. Despite being called Christians, they still wanted to be under the burdens of the law, burdens that the Lord God had imposed not on those serving righteousness, but on those serving sin. That is, he had given a righteous law unto unrighteous people to point out their sins, not to take them away. He takes away sins only by the grace of faith, which works through love. They are no longer under the law. He takes away sins only by the grace of faith, which works through love. In short, at its very heart, this epistle to the Galatians is a gospel letter. In the first two messages, we saw that this letter was written by Paul to the Galatian churches with a great sense of urgency, and that if anyone adds or takes away from the gospel that Paul had delivered, then it becomes not a weakened gospel, but no gospel at all. And last time, we saw that Paul was so sure, so zealous for the gospel that he pronounces a double anathema on anyone who would proclaim another gospel even if it were an angel from heaven. We also looked at Paul's defense of those who were charging him with being a man-pleaser in his gospel in order to lower the gospel bar or make the message of the gospel more seeker-friendly. This morning, we will look at Paul's defense of his apostleship in greater detail, and we will do so in four thematic defenses that he presents to the Galatians. Number one, Paul's apostolic call in the gospel. Number two, evidence for the veracity of Paul's call. Number three, Paul's response to the call. And finally, number four, Paul's oath in the result of his response to the call. So number one, Paul's apostolic call in the gospel. Each time we read or hear the letter to the Galatians, we need to remember and enter into the overarching, critical, architectonic structure and fundamental principles of the gospel that Paul is here passionately defending. We need to hear and believe and ready ourselves to defend the gospel, even as Paul does, because the truth is that we are facing some of the same battles and some of the same accusations that Paul was facing in his day. Some may be tempted to say that surely the gospel has grown and flourished and spread across the globe, and as it has done so, the men who preach it have become more resilient and adept at proclaiming it. But we need to remember that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, and against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual weaknesses, weakness, wickedness in high places, and that the enemy is the father of lies. And these lies continually find their way into the church and into the pulpit and into the hearts of men. We must ever remain diligent to promote and proclaim the true gospel. 
J.I. Packer notes as he considers a particular point in the history of the church, he writes, Without realizing it, we have, during the past century, bartered the gospel for a substitute product, which, though it looks similar enough in points of detail, is as whole as a whole decidedly a different thing, hence our troubles. For this substitute product does not answer the ends for which the authentic gospel has in past days proved itself so very mighty. There is an ebb and flow in cultures throughout history, and so we can proclaim with Solomon that there is nothing new under the sun. And yet we also know that as the gospel enters and begins to have a beautifying and God-glorifying effect upon the land, one generation must faithfully tend and defend the gospel garden and pass these responsibilities on to the next generation and the generation after that, and so on. It is the church militant in her defense and proclamation of the gospel that leads to the church triumphant. It was no doubt easier in some ways to proclaim the gospel across this land in previous generations. It seemed that there was such fertile ground for the truth. In fact, as a people, we had very little problem knowing that there was such a thing as truth or even absolute truth. We didn't struggle with identity issues. Everyone seemed to know a boy from a girl and that theft was wrong and that lying was wrong and not a virtue to be wielded adeptly by our politicians and thought leaders. In our present woke cancel culture, John MacArthur offers the following as the single most offensive statement that can be made in the realm of religion. There is only one God, one Savior, one true religion, one holy book, one gospel, one way of salvation. All other religious claims are lies, deceptions, doctrines of Satan and demons that lead people to eternal hell, along with all immoral, irreligious, atheistic, hedonistic, naturalistic unbelievers. End quote. That is the most offensive statement he could come up with, and it also happens to be the truth. The truth, brothers and sisters, is under attack, and we must be prepared to defend it. Paul knew this, and he defended it with all the passion and intellect that the Lord had gifted him with, and he began to promote and defend the ultimate truth in his apostolic call in the gospel. So beginning at verse 11, we read, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul here begins his defense in much the same way he opened the letter in verse 1. That is to say that the gospel he preached was not from men, nor through man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And he reiterates it here, certifying that the gospel he preached is not man's gospel, by the way, in this one sentence, we have both the noun and verb forms of gospel, so that he is literally saying, the gospel that I gospeled is not down from or according to man. In order to prove that the gospel message that he preached was from God, he denies here that it came from anywhere else other than God. 
And we can see in verse 11 that this gospel was in no way something he made up himself, nor was it anything contrived or conceived by anyone else. The gospel is not man's good news about God. It is God's good news for man. Let me say that again. It is important that we get this straight and right. The gospel is not man's good news about God. It is God's good news for man. Do you see the difference? Any sort of good news, any sort of gospel that has its origins in man is subject to error and not empowered by God and as such is incapable of salvation. As Paul later writes in his letter to the Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Paul further clarifies the source of the gospel as we look at verse 12, stating that he neither received the gospel from men, nor was he taught the gospel by any man. Paul didn't attend an evangelistic crusade, nor did he read a gospel tract. He didn't consult with the apostles, nor was he discipled by them. Why would he need to? He received the gospel by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Once he met the risen Christ for himself on the road to Damascus, there was nothing left that he needed to double-check. Paul, then Saul, is suddenly surrounded by a light from heaven. He falls to his knees, or more likely, flat on his face, and his first words are, Who art thou, Lord? He anticipates the answer in his question. And the Lord graciously responds, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Saul, you are only hurting yourself as you persecute the church and resist the Lord your God. We can only imagine what happened in Paul's brilliant mind at that moment. All of his training in the Torah and all of his study of the prophets, which had been built up into an onerous, fragile house of cards came crashing down. But the cards didn't collapse into a mess resembling 52-card pickup. Rather, the cards, each containing a portion of God's revelation from creation through all of the law and the prophets, fall into perfect order. And he sees more and more clearly the scarlet thread running through each story found on every card. And then Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And thus Saul begins his apostolic call in the gospel, a call immediately received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And on to point two, the evidence for the veracity of Paul's call. It is one thing to say that you are called to be an apostle. It's quite another to prove it. What evidence do you have that your calling is true, Paul? The reader of Paul's letter may ask. And so he proceeds to give his second defense and provide evidence for the veracity of his call with this answer to the hypothetical question posed as we turn to verse 13. For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, 
and profited in the Jews' religion, above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my father. Starting here in verse 13, he begins to support the veracity of his claim, and he's going to support it by contrasting his pre-conversion and post-conversion self. In doing this, he is confirming that he did indeed receive his gospel from Jesus directly. It is evident in his pre-conversion. It is evident in his miraculous conversion. And it is evidence in how he changed direction after his conversion. As he recounts his pre-conversion autobiography, notice what he says beginning with verse 13, reading now from the New King James Version. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Saul's reputation had preceded him. He was well known by his doings. If we were to put words in his mouth, we might phrase it this way. I was laboring with all my might in opposition to the gospel. I saw it as blasphemy, and I believed it was my responsibility before God to imprison and kill Christians. At the same time that I was denouncing and fighting against Christianity, I was also advancing in Judaism. You see, Paul was running with all of his might toward Judaism and persecuting Christianity. In verse 14, Paul goes on to describe his commitment in Judaism. He is a fanatic, a zealot. He's passionate. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's a legalist at every single level. It is as if he is saying, doesn't that tell you that I did not receive my gospel from men? My education itself is proof I never had the gospel handed down to me by men. I was brought up in the school of ritualism, legalism, Pharisaism, in direct opposition to the liberty of the gospel grace. You have heard this. You know this to be true of my former life, that as far as Judaism is concerned, I was a trained-up zealot. I persecuted the church. I tried to destroy it. I literally tried to waste it. I had men and women bound in chains and put in prison. And he even went so far as to urge Christians to blaspheme so that he would have reason to punish them. It was for that very blasphemy that he compelled them to, that he compelled them to, that they were imprisoned and killed. And if you were wondering, Saul was most definitely familiar with the gospel. He heard it from the lips of those he imprisoned. He had heard it from the lips of those he had led to death. The reason he was a persecutor was because he heard the gospel and he hated it. He heard it and he declared it to be blasphemy. He not only persecuted the church, he also says, I profited in the Jews' religion. He was advancing in Judaism. As some translations render it, it, uh, it may be literally translated, beating my way forward in the religion of the Jews. He was Gamaliel's star pupil, and he excelled beyond all of his peers. In Acts 22, verses 4 and 5, he gives explicit testimony about his pre-converted state. He writes, it is written, I persecuted this way to the death, 
binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. And also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were in Jerusalem to be punished. We find further information of Paul's testimony in Acts 26, where we read that detail about encouraging the Christians to blaspheme. Indeed, I thought, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This all I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was a zealot, and he stirred, stood firmly in the tradition of Jewish zealots, whose faithful testimony is recorded in Scripture. He firmly believed that in persecuting the Christians, he was doing that which was well-pleasing to God. He could look to the example of Elijah, who slew 450 prophets of Baal after God answered by fire as Elijah called to God to hear him. Elijah. Now there's a true zealot. Or how about Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, who turned away God's wrath from the children of Israel when he thrust a spear through a man, the man of Israel and the Midianite woman in the midst of their public fornication. Phinehas was commended as a zealous for God's sake, so that God consumed not the children of Israel in his jealousy. This is how Paul saw his zealot persecution of the Christians. We might summarize Paul's evidence for the truth of his calling from God with more hypothetical concluding remarks. Now tell me, dear readers, if I was more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions than anyone else, how, in a moment of time, did I stop, turn away from all that I was zealously devoted to, and become a preacher of Jesus Christ and the gospel? That doesn't make any sense at all. That kind of conversion and call doesn't come from men. I was determined and giving all that was within me to excel in Judaism and trying to please God. And my progress as a young rabbi was aided and abetted by the best teachers available. I was outdoing all of my Jewish contemporaries in my devotion to tradition. My career as a Pharisee of Pharisees looked extremely bright. And there was much personal honor and glory to be had. No, Saul was not called of man, but by the Lord of heaven and earth, even Jesus Christ. And this brings us to the next point, Paul's response to the call of Christ. We pick up reading at verse 15. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again into Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. 
But when it pleased God, such important words, but when it pleased God, the gospel had no attraction to Paul. He wasn't seeking it. Only God could change his heart. It had to be a revelation from God. This is sovereign, divine activity. Sovereign grace and sovereign power evidenced and on display in Saul's life. God who separated me from my mother's womb. Had God really predetermined the salvation of this man? Yes. God predetermines the salvation of every person. When a man is going headlong in one direction and suddenly stops, reverses, and goes the absolute opposite direction, there has to be a divine explanation. God saved him. God broke into his darkness and transformed his life. This is the miracle of conversion. Initiated by God because he was chosen by God. He was set apart even from his mother's womb. And what that means is at the very moment of his conception in the womb of his mother, God's purposes for him had already begun. In fact, it is before the foundation of the world that God knows intimately each and every one of his elect. And called me by his grace. God's effectual call to salvation upon Saul of Tarsus happened right there on the Damascus Road by His grace. And it didn't stop there. God was pleased to reveal His Son in me. Why? Acts 4.12 Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name other heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. To what end? That I might preach Him among the heathen. This is the work of God. God chooses. God regenerates through the effectual call by His grace. God reveals His Son so that faith is born and attached to the Son of God. And then Christ gives good gifts so that all may be equipped to walk in the good works that He calls them to. And Saul, later commissioned as Paul, becomes a preacher of the one whom he had been persecuting. <clears throat> you may say, well, he doesn't do that for us today. Really? No, we're not apostles and we don't have that particular call upon our lives. But there is a work of the Spirit. We are given faith to believe. We do repent and believe the gospel by that same faith. And we walk daily in that faith, repentance, and belief. Don't we? When you manifest love for your brother or sister in Christ, are you walking according to your calling? When you rise early to go to work to provide for your family, when you prepare meal after meal for your ever-hungry children, when you bring a word of encouragement or an act of sacrificial service to someone in need, or stand for the gospel on the sidewalk outside the abortion clinic, or exhort your brother in holiness, or point a sister upward to Christ and away from her pain or grief. When you honor your dying mother in sweet submission to her humbling needs, when you speak well of your parents, 
or forsake your desires for those of another. And when you gather with the saints and worship God with your whole heart and your whole mind and your whole body and spirit and truth and do all of these things as unto the Lord, are you not about the very things the Lord has called you unto? Paul opens his first letter to the Corinthian church with Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Are we not to have have the same mind about the calling of God upon our lives? Can we not say, Marion, called to be a pastor of Christ's church, husband to Chesley, and father to my children, through the will of God our Father. Or Bethany, called to be a disciple of Christ, mother of many, and wife to Paul, by the will of God. It is in the purpose of God that He will, at His own time, when He pleases, when it pleases Him, to call His elect to Himself with an effectual call that takes them out of the darkness and into the light, and it is all through grace. It is His pleasure to do that. Whatever pleases the Lord, that is what He does. As our text this morning proclaims, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb. The same is revealed of John the Baptist in Luke 1. The same is revealed about Messiah in Isaiah 49. The same is said of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1. All were chosen before they were ever born to be proclaimers of the one true God. And so as Paul records for us immediately, I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles I saw, saw none, save James the Lord's brother. Saul is called and set apart by God right there on the Damascus road. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And Saul freely submits and obeys. His will and his desires have changed. His stony heart has been made flesh. He goes to the house of Ananias, who lays his hands on him, and Saul receives his sight. He receives the power of the Holy Spirit. He is baptized, and he learns of his commission to preach Christ to the Gentiles. And as soon as he recovers his strength, immediately he sets his hand to the plow to do the work he has been called to, including the things he must suffer for Christ's sake. He doesn't check in with Peter or the other of the apostles. No, he goes straight to work. He has been called, and he responds. And this brings us to our fourth and final point. What is the result of Paul's faithful response? Returning to our text at verse 30, verse 20. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. 
and they glorified God in me. Paul here continues his testimony. He swears an oath before God that he is telling the truth. This is a serious courtroom-worthy affidavit of the truth of his calling to be an apostle by God and to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. It is beyond dispute. And the result of his faithful obedience to the call is most glorious indeed. When the people heard about the total change that had taken place in Paul's life, all they could do was give glory to God. And they glorified God in me. It was indisputable that, the only, that only the direct intervention of God could change such a sinner's heart. And when God does intervene, to Him alone all glory belongs. For it is all God's sovereign doing. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And so as we conclude this first chapter of Galatians, it is strikingly clear that Paul is contending with urgency for the purity and singularity of the gospel of Christ. So whether it is you that may be asking the question, or a neighbor, friend, or stranger that you are witnessing to, the question before us is, what must I do to be saved? I thought it might be helpful to turn once again to J.I. Packer and his concluding remarks in the introduction to John Owen's definitive work, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, and to read his answer to the question, What must I do to be saved? Packer writes, The old gospel replies, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To the further question, What does it mean to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Its reply is, It means knowing, knowing oneself to be a sinner in Christ to have died for sinners, abandoning all self-righteousness and self-confidence, and casting oneself wholly upon Him for pardon and peace and exchanging one's natural enmity and rebellion against God for a spirit of grateful submission to the will of Christ through the renewing of one's heart by the Holy Ghost. And to the further question still, how am I going to go about believing on Christ and repenting if I have no natural ability to do these things? It answers, look to Christ. Speak to Christ. Cry to Christ just as you are. Confess your sins, your impenitence, your unbelief, and cast yourself on His mercy. Ask Him to give you a new heart, working in you true repentance and firm faith. Ask Him to take away your evil heart of unbelief and trust Him as best you can. And pray for grace to turn and trust more thoroughly. Use the means of grace expectantly, looking to Christ to draw near to you as you seek to draw near to Him. Watch, pray, read and hear God's Word, worship and commune with God's people, and so continue till you know in yourself beyond doubt that you are indeed a changed being, a penitent believer. And the new heart which you desired has been put within you. The emphasis in this advice is on the need to call upon Christ directly 
is the very first step. As the old hymn declares, let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requireth is to feel your need of Him. So do not postpone action till you think you are better, but honestly confess your badness and give yourself up here and now to the Christ who alone can make you better and wait on Him till His light rises in your soul as Scripture promises that it shall do. Anything less than this direct dealing with Christ is disobedience of the gospel. Such is the exercise of spirit to which the old evangel summons its hearers. I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. This must become their cry. End quote. And it must be our cry. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father in heaven, we are so, so very thankful for the gospel and for those saints who have zealously defended it in its purity through the millennia. We're thankful that the gospel does not depend on any good thing in us, but only upon the perfection of Christ. We are thankful for your effectual call upon our lives and for your covenant promises given to Abraham and delivered to us through Christ. And in Christ we are Abraham's seed and and heirs according to the promise. O Lord, grant us greater faith to know and believe your promises and to rest in and strive for the truth of the gospel. Grant us courage where we are fearful, peace where we are anxious, boldness where we are timid, and a confident faith that displaces all doubt and use us to stand for the absolute truth of your word in this generation. For we come asking in Christ's holy name. Amen.